Welcome to the Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing Podcast, where we explore the hottest topics in cyber marketing, interview experts, and help you become a better cybersecurity marketer. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing. I'm your host, Gianna Whitford. Today, Maria can't make it, but you'll see her on a future episode. I am so excited to introduce our guest for today, Mary Yang, the CMO of Looking Glass Cyber. Mary is an expert in a super niche space, which is cybersecurity marketing in the federal government industry. And we are so excited to dive into that topic with her today. Along with being the CMO of Looking Glass Cyber, she also spent almost six years at MITRE, not pronounced Mitre, by the way, it's MITRE, as an IoT and cybersecurity project lead, then a strategic advisor, and finally a portfolio manager. So we're here to talk about, I'm not going to presume it's your favorite subject, Mary, but probably one of your favorite subjects, uh, marketing in cybersecurity in the FedGov space. So First and foremost, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you even get into this space? In some ways, I've been told that I shouldn't say this. I really fell into it, I think is the best way to put it. I didn't think I'd be a marketer when I was in college. I figured I'd end up being a professor at a small liberal arts college, which is um, where I went to school. And it turned out that being in academia was not the right path for me. I'm glad I figured that out after only getting one graduate degree and not having to you know, assign my life away for six years before I figured that out. And when I finished up with my master's degree, I came back into the real world and was like, I need a job. And, uh, and I need a job quickly and fell into marketing communications purely by accident because the only two things I knew how to do were to write and to edit. What was your major? So I majored in English Lit, and then I did my master's degree at the University of Sussex in uh, English Lit as well with a concentration in colonial and post-colonial cultures. Which has served you very well. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It has all the things to do with cyber. I mean, maybe these days, maybe these days. Um, (laughs) So yeah, so um, I ended up in marketing and I um, eventually ended up working for this startup in the Midwest that created software specifically for government. Um, So federal, state and local and some UK government as well. It was fascinating and weird and totally different. I come from a large ERP, publicly traded company, and like found myself in a startup where I didn't have to go to legal to ask for permission to print stuff. Like I just printed whatever I wanted. It was fabulous and glorious and very dangerous. And, <laughs> such freedom. Uh, <laughs> such freedom. It was amazing. And quickly learned that like offering tickets to the suite at the local arena for hockey games or concerts was not part of the thing that you could do marketing to the government, right? But that's what I did in my previous job because it was all B2B. It was healthcare focused. And so we had a suite, the company had a suite and, you know, it was just a round robin of who got to use it. And when you weren't whining and dining potential customers, you got like access to the suite itself. And so it was like this lovely little perk. And I came into this 
role at the startup. And it was like, well, why don't we offer tickets? And they all looked at me like I was crazy. And I quickly learned that there is this ethical threshold for giveaways. That was sort of my first foray into marketing to the government. And then I did that for quite a few years. And in that process, learned that the key to marketing to government is really content marketing. I mean, building that thought leadership, becoming a trusted advisor, like all of those things are so critical. There's a bunch of other stuff too, but it definitely was one of those things where understanding the audience, understanding what they cared about, and then being able to like just cover and dominate that topic was going to be the way to success. So let's just backtrack for a minute, because I think a lot of people who are not in FedGov will just get stuck on that ethical thing. What exactly do you mean? Is there a limit of how much you can spend or can people not accept gifts at all? Like, what is it? Yeah. So for most folks, it's like a $25 limit that they can accept gifts of. So, you know, sometimes people are willing to take a cup of coffee or like, you know, $5 Starbucks gift card as a little giveaway. But I've run into some, you know, govies who won't even accept like a ride. I was working, this is when I was working at MITRE and there was an event down the road and, you know, a bunch of folks were going and I offered a govy a ride and he refused. He was like, you know, I just don't want to cross that line. And, you know, I don't want it like there's gas and whatnot. And like the cost of an Uber versus like, you know, taking a ride with you. So I'm just gonna like, not get in your car, because I don't want to even approach a line where it seems like I might be accepting a gift from you. And I was like, that's okay. I mean, I'm not going to push you. Seems a little crazy to me, but sure. <laughs> Exactly. There's that 52 cent reimbursement per mile. Exactly. Mary, and it can add <laughs> yeah. up really fast if you have yeah. to go, you know, like yeah. 40 yeah. miles. <laughs> that's, exactly. Did you say govy? Yeah. That's really cute. Is that, that's like such a, I don't know. I picked that up when I was at MITRE. We, we all called them govies. I love that. That is so cute. It's, that's so funny that you've never heard that because I feel like it's such a part of my vernacular. This is how much I live in the government space, apparently. It's cute. I want to, I'm going to apply that to all of my ICPs at <laughs> Rotero. We're going to call them bankies. There and you go. Insurances. <laughs> all right. So there's some special things around FedGov marketing. You're saying that there's obviously restrictions, but there's opportunities in the content marketing space if you quote unquote, can dominate, which I love that as a term as a marketer. I'm like really into that. Can you talk a little bit more about that and the importance of content marketing in FedGov? It might be helpful to back up just a little bit, right? In marketing, as with a lot of other sectors and markets, you want to develop this persona, right? You've got personas of the different folks that are going to be involved in that fine decision. And in government, that is true too. You've got influencers and users, you've got a decision maker, um, you've got a budget authority. Sometimes those two things are like those two people are not the same. And then there's this whole other group of people, contracting officers and procurement specialists who aren't part of oftentimes the technical evaluation of procurement, right? Like that procurement officer is oftentimes not involved until that that team of people that you've been talking to this whole time, they're ready to actually push paper. 
And like, that's a big deal. So there's a bit of this wall of, of this firewall between procurement and contracting and all of the people that you've been talking to. And what ends up happening is that those procurement folks, they're trained in going out and doing market research to understand what's the field look like of this particular technical product that this group is trying to acquire. So as a salesperson and marketing team, you spend all this time driving your awareness and helping to get this team of people bought into your solution. And then like out of nowhere, someone comes in and does some market research, which is why that content marketing piece is so critical. You have to be out there. You have to be dominating this topic space. You have to be showing that you both understand some of the, the issues, but also the solution set, what that looks like, how to drive value. And I think the other thing within content marketing for for government specifically, is that mission focus, right? Because so much of the language of marketing, you know, if you're marketing to financial folks, it's about, you know, the confidentiality of the data. If you're marketing to healthcare, it's about uptime and operations. Like you can't have a hospital go down, right? Within the government, it could be all of those things or none of those things. I mean, that mission focus and that mission language becomes so important, especially if you're trying to ensure that someone who you have absolutely no contact to with, who you can't contact, it's like illegal in a lot of ways to be talking to procurement officers, that they're able to do research and get the information they need to ensure that they're also moving in the right direction, which is you know, theoretically a contract for your company or your technology. So let's talk a little bit more about that procurement vehicle and that procurement process, because, right, you, you just said that, hey, so there's you're, you're marketing to this, you know, your personas and then in swoops in, foo, like an eagle, the procurement team who then has to go out and research alternatives because in the government space, I'm making an assumption. I'd love for you to correct me if I'm wrong. In the government space, there's competitive bidding. There's RFPs. Can you talk about the RFP process and influencing RFPs and strategies around that? A little bit. So I I think that there's a few different ways that procurement happens, right? Definitely there's the sort of gold standard from a technical software company perspective, which is like a sole source justification. But there's a lot of paperwork and I love my govies and I'm sure that they would agree with me on this. Paperwork is not fun. And so... If you can avoid paperwork, you're going to try to avoid paperwork. (laughs) So you could certainly try to move for this sole source justification type contract. But if you don't want to do that or you can't do that, then that competitive process definitely comes into play. And the other thing that is interesting about the government, both maybe interesting and scary in our current moment, is how much public data is out there. Right. The government has to publish the RFPs publicly. They have to publish RFIs, requests for information publicly. Right. They have to sometimes respond to your questions within a set period of time. There's like all of these rules and so much information that is available online just with like basic Google searches. So say you've got a request for information that gets pushed out and there's, you know, a department looking for some technology in, in cyber or some kind of thing, right? And that RFI sort of signals that there is 
you know, potential procurement coming down the, the line. More often than not, they don't issue an RFP without an RFI initially issued first. So you already have a bit of a heads up with that RFI. And then, you know, you do a little bit of the sales and marketing. You want to make sure that you're developing content that helps to kind of address where that government agency is looking and how that aligns with the technology you offer. You want to get your salespeople in there, right? Making those relationships and submitting that RFI and submitting that sort of initial flag that we're interested as a company. And then um, as you build out those relationships, right, just making sure, and so much of this is sales side, making sure that we're answering those questions, providing that thought leadership, being that trusted advisor, being a good subject matter expert, making sure that those folks, the folks on the government side, have access to all of your technical SMEs so that, you know, they're sort of always willing to answer questions and be engaged and like driving for forward that idea that we're there to help you as much as you need help, right? To answer your questions, to help you think through the technical components of this, how this would work, all of that stuff. And then you get to RFP process. I mean, there's so, so much, so much stuff. And then that RFP process is really, you know, answering the mail, but some of it is also making sure that, you know, other people have been doing the same thing you've been doing. So it's, you can't, you can't expect that your competitors aren't in there too. And so the RFP is also a really interesting snapshot of like, have they, have they sort of bought into and agreed with our positioning and alignment and kind of theories on how to do this? Or are there other questions in here that, that we think play to some of our competitor strengths instead? And so it's this really sort of like, how do we read this crystal ball? And let's figure out if there are other ways to influence this crystal ball. That's so interesting because because of the content marketing that you've been doing, but also because of the content marketing that your competitors have been doing, you can see that reflected in the yeah. RFP. Yeah. Which is so cool. Yeah. I would love if I had more knowledge, it like I'm such a detective. I'd love to, I love the competitive side of this stuff. So I'd love to be like looking through an RFP and being like, Ooh, I know who that is. And Ooh, I know who that is. <laughs> there are definitely, I think, RFPs that we've come across where that is true. I will also say that this doesn't just happen in federal government, right? Like we've gotten RFPs from really big banks. And so a lot of the larger organizations, if you're playing in that Fortune 500 type space, like they also do a very similar process. It ends up being in some ways super methodical and yeah. So Mary, you know, you're in this FedGov cybersecurity marketing, which is a unique space. And you also have, like you said, an English background and an English degree, which is like, you know, what a lot of us marketers have. Um, and it's sometimes difficult for us to get an understanding or put ourselves in the feet of the customer or the prospect because they are technical people. Recently on the Jobs Board channel of the Cybersecurity Marketing Society, Someone asked, what are some things that they can do or some trainings that they could do in order to improve their you know, understanding of the cybersecurity space and become a better cybersecurity marketer? And some people replied, read the NIST framework. And you are one of those people. Can you yeah. explain why you think it's helpful? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one thing that I think is really important about 
the uh, NIST cybersecurity framework, even though it, it is a technical document, because uh, obviously it came from NIST. Um, one of the things that they really tried hard to do was to um, sort of speak in plain language, right? Clear up some of that like fuzziness, cloudiness, haziness um, with cybersecurity. And so they really strive in that document, I think, to connect the technical with business, with like plain language that normal people would understand. And so, again, from this idea that federal government marketing is a lot about content marketing, it's about speaking the language of those folks. And so when I say to any cybersecurity person, technical person, well, our product really helps you identify blank or really help you detect X they know exactly where to put our solution in that framework, right? And the nice thing about the framework, too, is that it's not adopted just by government. It's adopted broadly by critical infrastructure, too. And so literally everyone sort of speaks this language. And, and personally, because my love is sort of in communications and writing and content, I think it's important for cybersecurity marketers to be able to speak that language too. You don't have to apply the NIST cybersecurity framework. I'm not going to ask you to figure out what our like company's CSF profile looks like, but I need you to be able to understand you know, how different detect is from protect and how different identify is from recover. And I think the NIST cybersecurity framework is a really, I mean, it's only like 10 pages. It looks like a lot of pages, but a lot of it's like appendices and charts and stuff that you don't really have to dig into. So it's like 10 pages and should be fairly easy to consume. And I think that's critical. Great advice. And we'll drop a link to that NIST cybersecurity framework in the show notes so that everybody here who has a desire to do some bedtime reading tonight can take a look at it. Yes, exactly. Bedtime reading. <laughs> and now we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors and producers, Hacker Valley Media. Chris Cochran and Ron Eddings run an amazing studio here, which produces not only the Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing podcast, but a bunch of other shows that you're going to want to listen to as well. So all these shows plus more, and then on top of that, probably even more coming soon, are available to look at, listen to, and sponsor at HackerValley.com. Make sure you go over there and say, hey, Gianna and Maria said I should come check out your website, listen to your shows, and uh, sponsor a podcast or two. Thanks. So Mary, with this unique space and its unique benefits and ways of marketing, I assume there's also some unique or interesting challenges that come with FedGov marketing. Can you like talk through some of these challenges that you experience in the FedGov marketing space? Absolutely. I think one of the um, big things, and it was uh, it was a little crazy when I came in as well, was just how few um customers are able to even give you a testimonial, right? And um, they're, they're, so there's on top of the $25 limit on the ethics thing, they're also not allowed to endorse a company, like a private sector company. And so a customer testimonial or a, a success story that has their name on it, I think can't be seen as a government entity sort of favoring one company over another. And so 
there's sort of all of these hoops that I learned coming up through the ranks around how to even get close to a success story with a government customer because of that. And I know there's a lot of big companies that also don't like to talk about, you know, sort of who they're using from a cybersecurity uh, technology perspective or solutions perspective, but it is pulling teeth is easier than trying to get a government testimonial. So there's just a lot of these like little nuances and making sure that they feel good and that you're going to anonymize anything that they say. And I have dozens of sort of customer case studies where I've tried to anonymize it and they're left on the cutting room floor because the department is still not comfortable with us releasing it. And But like you have to kind of go through the motion anyway. You have to like go through all that uh, interviewing and drafting to get to a place where you can show them something. And, um, and like 50% of the time, maybe a little more, um, it's just never approved and you kind of have to be like, okay, we just have to keep going. Oof, that is so painful. 50% of your case studies and your, you know, your success stories get thrown out after all the effort of, you know, video and whatever else you're doing, writing and producing and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. My heart, my heart hurts for you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you can't even do the sneaky things like that, that sneaky is a harsh word, but you know, in commercial, if you have someone who's reluctant to do a case study, you can still, you know, pay for them to attend a conference with you and maybe speak, you know, some yep. sideways stuff, have them yep. on a podcast with you. Nope. But it sounds like in government, that's a, that's a big no, no. Yeah. I can't get them. Like, so there's one uh, conference we're planning on heading to in May and we have a speaking session and I tried to get one of our customers in that area to do a joint speaking session with us, which he was up for, but only if the conference organizers gave him a free pass, it couldn't come through us. So it's like one of those things where it was like, even the package that we got, he couldn't get the pass through us. It had to come from the conference organizers and then all of this other stuff. Right. And he's not going to be speaking because the conference organizers wanted full rights to his IP like and his image and his likeness. And he was like, as a government official, I can't sign this away. Like my ethics company, like our legal counsel refuses. And so it was like plan B is it's just a looking glass speaker. So that's what I'm doing in May. Oh man. Well, I, I know it'll be good still. Hopefully. Thanks. Hopefully. <laughs> so last question before we get to our fun question, you know, you've been in cybersecurity fed gov marketing for a while. What are some changes that you're seeing in the space? Well, I definitely think the current moment with what's happening in Eastern Europe is affecting kind of the general pace of of federal marketing and government marketing, right? And there's been a lot of talk about this, even on the Slack channel within the community about, you know, not ambulance chasing. And I think that there's this fine line between being helpful, like really trying to drive impact and mission value and ambulance chasing. And so there's a little bit more, I think, fluidity and flexibility with the kind of information that we're providing to the government. Because another thing with government is that it's also illegal for them to take things for free. So that's one of those things where if you're doing like pilots, you can't do a, a free pilot because it's illegal for them to take stuff for free. Wow. No free POCs. Yeah, no, definitely no free POCs. It's not like 
going after the big banks where they require everything be free. It's another form of sort of bribery that could be seen, right, and favoritism. So how do you drive value? How do you, um, with this mission, this critical mission? And I think that those, some of those things are becoming a little bit looser given the state of the world and like potential war being broken out, right? And I think that also means that there's a drive within the federal government to try and make procurements move faster, right? The the thing about government is that it's so slow. It's like 18 to 24 months to get a contract signed. I mean, that's like the opportunity life cycle for a lot of these, depending on your price point. And with the current crisis in, in Russia and Ukraine, it's like, how do we get the tools we need? to really make sure that we're in the best place possible as a country, that our allies are supported and do that quickly because we don't have 24 months to wait. All of those things are starting to affect how we market and it will affect that in the next like eight months easily, eight to nine months. Is this coming from any specific department? I know that there was the big executive order that everybody was talking about in our group and across the cybersecurity landscape like a few months ago saying that, hey, we need to... Uh, up our investments and we're going to up our investments in cybersecurity. Is this, is this sort of part of that or is this like now completely different because of Ukraine and Russia? I think it's a little different because of Ukraine and Russia. So I think that the executive order in the past, this most recent one, it was a recognition, I think after like colonial and solar winds that our infrastructure is just not in great shape. And so we need to improve that. Right. And so like those investments and all of those bills, I think of them as like foundational, like this is what we should be doing and what we have to kind of invest in so that everything gets a little bit better. But it's sort of supercharged in this moment with Russia, because now it's like, to be honest, I think most of the funds that were um, part of those acts haven't gotten dispersed yet. Right. Because it's the government. So even if it was six to eight months ago, you know, the grant cycle and paperwork, paperwork and <laughs> like it hasn't even hit the budgets or the desks of the people that need it to improve their cybersecurity. And now you're in this supercharged Russia moment on top of it. So you think things are, will get, you know, quote unquote, better in terms of cycles? I think it has to in this it, with with this sort of almost wartime like world we're living in now. I think of it as like, right, with World War II, you suddenly had all of these private sector companies pivot, become partners in this sort of, you know, military industrial complex, because that's what needed to happen. And I think we're very close to something similar. That's very interesting. That's really cool. Like I have not heard that perspective before. And I, we would only get that perspective from you because you're an expert in federal government cybersecurity marketing. So we're so happy we had you on the podcast today. Thanks. All right, Mary. So now we're at our very last question and our fun question on breaking through in cybersecurity marketing. If you were not doing what you're doing today, which is marketing, and also I'm going to loop in English teaching <laughs> because... I feel like that would be too easy of an answer. Okay. If you were not a marketer or like a professor, what would you be doing? I mean, there's the, there's the like dream, right? Where I just travel around the world and enjoy life because I'm randomly independently wealthy. Um, (laughs) So I would say like, if that were true, 
I would do that. I would just travel. I'd like hang out in nice places and like, <laughs> eat good food. <laughs> I think like, a job though. <laughs> I well, I mean, I could, um, I could, I could be an influencer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> be a travel influencer. I was actually, I just watched the Tinder swindler. So I was like, I could do that, but that sounds really bad. So <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but if I, uh, if I'm not independently wealthy, if I actually have to earn a living, I think that one of the things that um, would probably be sort of nearest and dearest to my heart is being in like sort of restaurant and hospitality. So I grew up in restaurants and I love food. All of my coworkers will tell you that if you ever need restaurant recommendations in whatever city you are in, anywhere in the world, I will have good ones for you. So I think that that would be my, that would be my jams. I know all the best places in Vegas. I've got like the reading on San Francisco places for restaurants. I also know where all the best karaoke places are in these cities too. We are learning a lot about Mary Yang yes. on this podcast today. I eat a lot and I sing off key. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. What a great answer. I am going to ask you for recommendations like anytime I go anywhere. So unfortunately, Mary, you unlock that box. So be prepared for a lot of questions. I, I love it. I, and I have done that before. I've had, friend, I've had colleagues who are like in New York and they're like, where do we go eat? And it's like, where are you in New York? And here's a few different places. And then it, they're always like, this is amazing. Who are you? So on demand restaurant recommendations for whatever city you're in. You need a blog. <laughs> you need to have a food blog. Do you have a food blog? They like secretly... I don't. I have thought about that. I did think about that during the pandemic because we had, we like, we were, we were sort of stupid and we did not understand DoorDash until like 14 months into the pandemic. So for like an entire year, we cooked everything. It was wow. insane. Every meal, it was nuts. And then I discovered DoorDash and, and was like, oh, fantastic. So we went through lots of recipes, lots of cooking. I probably should have started a blog now that you're telling me this. I mean, now it sounds like you should start a ghost kitchen is what it sounds like to me. <laughs> I would, and I'm close enough. I would come visit your, I would come and order from DoorDash to your ghost kitchen, whatever it's called. And I'd eat it at, I don't know, a park nearby. <laughs> there you go. We'll there's a few of those. Yeah. There's some, yeah. there's some parts nearby. Yeah. Yeah. From chief marketing officer of Looking Glass to future ghost kitchen owner, like where can people reach out to you if they want to, you know, hear more about yeah. you? So I'm happy to connect on LinkedIn. I think that's probably the easy. Um, I'm, I don't know about other marketers, but I'm always on every single device all the time. So folks can find me on LinkedIn. Mary C. Yang is my little, it's like, that's like the part of the LinkedIn URL. And I'm happy to connect with anyone uh, and talk even like quick chats and quick intros. I love that. Awesome. And I think we can also find, you know, for those of you who are listening who are part of the Cybersecurity Marketing Society or want to join, I know Mary is one of our active members of the society and one of the most helpful and amazing members that we have. I and love so the society. The society is fantastic. It's been so great. Oh my gosh. That just, again, warms my heart again and again. All right. So thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing. If you want to be on the show, send an email to podcasts with an S at hackervalley.com or visit the webpage cybersecuritymarketingsociety.com 
backslash podcast, no S. We'll see you next Wednesday with another episode. Make sure to like, subscribe, and give us five stars. Thanks. See you next time.